Well, amen. Luke chapter 2. If you guys have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2. You notice it a little bit in Dakota's uh, job description that he has to sing Oh Holy Night every December when he, while he's here. So, <laughs> so yeah, he, man, that was such an incredible, awesome, awesome time there of worship. Thank you, Dakota. Thank you, team. Choir for showing out, man. Y'all, y'all did just awesome, the whole team. Um, so excited about today. And, uh, and for Dakota being here and just uh, excited for the new season and uh, what the Lord has in store. But Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, uh, if you have your Bibles, um, you know, we've been in this series that we started last week called The Waiting Place because there's something you're going to do this Christmas season because Christmas naturally invites us to do it and it's wait. Uh, you are going to wait. You're going to wait at the store, you're going to wait in traffic. You're going to wait in the doctor's office. You're going to wait for that day off. You're going to wait for the kids to go back to school. You're going to wait for family. You're going to wait to arrive. You're going to wait to leave. You're going to wait to open. You're going to wait to see. You are going to wait. But like we saw last week, we don't like to wait. We naturally, our disposition is we are not very pleased with waiting. We don't like to wait in line for that eggnog latte, um, even though it is worth it. We don't like to wait for that number one. We don't like to sit at the restaurant and wait for that waiter or waitress if they're taking too long. We don't like to wait at the DMV. We don't like to wait in the school pickup line. We just don't like to wait. And I'll give you an example. According to the news reports, there was a Florida woman who has sued the makers of Velveeta shells and cheese. Some of you might have seen this in the news. She claimed that the dish takes too long to make. The craft company markets its microwavable cups as ready in three and a half minutes, but Amanda Ramirez says it takes longer. And so she is suing them for $5 million and claims that the time advertised does not include preparation time. You know, like opening the lid and the sauce pouch before adding your water and stirring. I mean, that takes a whole 30 seconds. Kraft Heinz Food Company described the lawsuit as frivolous and said, we will strongly defend against the allegations in the complaint. In the lawsuit, which was filed in a Florida court last month, Ms. Ramirez's lawyers claimed that she paid more than she would have had she had known the truth. The lawsuit also asked the company to cease its deceptive advertising and be made to engage in a corrective advertising campaign. We hate waiting, so much so that we just might even sue someone over waiting too long for a little bit of mac and cheese. However, the waiting place is a part of life. You're going to be waiting. At some point in time, you're going to find yourself in the waiting place, as we saw last week, with anticipation, expectation, with hope. You're going to be waiting for that person to come home that you haven't seen in weeks, months. You're going to be waiting to get that phone call. You're going to be waiting to hear those results for the answer to come, to go forward, to say yes or to say no. It's inevitable. You will find yourself in the waiting place, and especially in the Christmas season. And Advent reminds us, not only the, the first Advent, but also of the second Advent. We await the appearing, the arrival of Jesus. We look forward. We are in the waiting place with expectation and anticipation, with hope at His appearing. And one of the things we're waiting for is true, authentic, real, eternal shalom is the Hebrew word for it. 
Irene is the Greek word for it, but we know it as peace. We are waiting for shalom. Irene, peace. Much like those before that first Christmas years and years ago. So about 50 years before the birth of Jesus, Julius Caesar had been murdered and civil war had erupted in Rome. And out of the muddled war emerged a trio of leaders, names you'll recognize, Lepidus, Antony, Octavian. This trio, they ruled Rome for a decade, but eventually their differences divided them. So Octavian, he defeated Lepidus in battle. And then he turned his armies against the powerful Mark Antony. And at that time, Antony had fallen in love with and married the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And at the Battle of Actium off the coast of Greece in 31 BC, Octavian's navy defeated the navy of Antony and Cleopatra, who later, both famously, would commit suicide. Octavian returned to Rome, and he was triumphant, and he would become the first emperor of Rome in 27 BC, or BCE, for those of you who are caught up with the common era stuff. The Senate then bestowed upon him what they believed to be a holy, majestic title in that of Augustus. Hence, Caesar Augustus, as he became known. And he ruled for 41 years, and the policies that he enacted laid the groundwork for what was known as the Pax Romana. The term Pax Romana literally means Roman peace, and it refers to a 200-year period in the Roman Empire that began with Caesar Augustus in 27 BC, and it's a period of time that saw unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the empire, which at that time spanned from England in the north to Morocco, shout out to them in the World Cup victory, in the south, and Iraq in the east. During the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire reached its peak in terms of land area. Its population swelled to an estimated 70 million people. Rome's citizens were relatively secure, and the government generally maintained law and order and stability. The Pax Romana saw many advances and accomplishments, particularly in engineering and the arts. For example, many of Rome's finest writers produced literary and poetic masterpieces. And to help maintain and connect their incredible empire... The Romans built an extensive system of roads the world had never seen before. These durable roads facilitated the movement of troops and more than expanded their capability of communication. The Romans, they would also build aqueducts to carry water over land to cities and farms. And many of these advances in architecture and building relied upon the Romans' discovery of concrete. Concrete made possible the creation of huge rounded arches and domes. And one of the most famous structures built during this Pax Romana was this structure right here, the Pantheon. It still has one of the largest freestanding domes in the world to today. Ultimately, though, Rome became the economic, political, and cultural capital of the entire Western world. So the Pax Romana was everything the world was supposed to need. The Romans had accomplished and could offer to anyone so willing to come under their umbrella everlasting peace. 
A kind of peace the world had never tasted before, the world had never experienced before. And yet beneath the surface, there remained darkness, depravity, distress, and despair. For example, the world still embraced and endorsed government political leaders who could get away with the killing of two-year-old boys and younger in an entire community simply because of his selfish insecurities at the mention of one born king of the Jews. See the story of Herod after the wise men, for an example. A story we often don't talk about when sipping eggnog around the Christmas tree, right? Despite the Pax Romana and what Rome proclaimed it could offer the world, injustices still remained and continued. There was slavery like no other. Inequality, oppression, abuse, neglect, sickness. The multitude, as Jesus would later say, who were still helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Despite the Pax Romana, people were broken and wanting and searching, dwelling in the land of deep darkness, walking and stumbling about through the valley of the shadow of death, still waiting for something they knew they wanted, something they knew they needed, but something they just couldn't quite possess in and of the world. And then in those days, In the days of the Pax Romana, in the days of Caesar Augustus, this is what we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, nearby Bethlehem. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night, doing what they always did. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were gripped with fear. They were terrified, as you and I would be, right? But the angel said to them, fear not. Don't be afraid. Because I bring you the gospel, the good news. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today, this moment, in these days, in the days of the Pax Romana, in the days of Caesar Augustus, in the town of David, this little Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you, unto you, for you, has been born this Savior. And He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is going to be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes, cloths, lying in a manger, feeding trough for animals. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, they appeared with the angel, just as we read earlier, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace. Not the Pax Romana, but on earth now, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So through messengers, God appears to shepherds, and he announces his, his peace. A peace, again, quite unlike the Pax Romana. A peace directly tied to the birth and presence of this newborn baby in Bethlehem named Jesus. But what exactly is this shalom? Is this erene? Is this peace? This word in both Hebrew and Greek, although it's used often as a greeting or a farewell, meaning, hey, 
good wishes to you, blessings to you, shalom, although it can mean the absence from war or conflict or hostility in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well, this word carried with it this idea of wholeness or well-being, this idea of something or someone being restored, like that of a broken wall being put back together. A broken building being restored, made whole again. And in the New Testament, the writers use this word with some new understanding in light of Jesus. As one source said, virtually all the New Testament letters include peace in their opening greeting. And they usually pair it with this word grace. And what is emphasized in the New Testament is the connection between peace and spiritual blessing. Peace occurs in association with righteousness and grace and mercy and love and joy and life. We read that God is a God of peace, that his gospel is a gospel of peace, that Christ's work is to bring peace, that Christ's death has accomplished peace between God and humanity and peace between Jew and Gentile. But it's important to know that this word for those in Christ, for those belonging to the Lord, for the sheep of his pasture on whom his favor rests, peace is not just an idea. It's not just a political slogan. It's not just a theory or a feeling. What God is announcing to these shepherd boys is a reality. Peace is a reality in which they can now possess a reality of tranquility, stillness, stability, a reality of completeness, of wholeness, a reality of a soul restored. The God of peace has come to declare his gospel of peace, that the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah would coin the term, has now arrived and come. And we can now possess this peace even when walking through the valley of the shadow of death or darkness or depression or distress or despair. David in Psalm 23 envisioned green pastures, still waters. He envisioned peace. Even as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he would fear no evil for he knew that he was the sheep of the Lord's pasture, that the Lord is his shepherd and that the great shepherd was with him which gave David peace even when he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and it gave him an expectation of a realized peace to come when he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this brings up a crucial truth around the Scripture's idea of this word peace. It is directly tied to the Lord and to His presence in our lives. Ultimately, the biblical idea of peace, what God is announcing is this, not just an absence of something, an absence of hostility and conflict and war, it's the announcement of the presence of someone. And it is an authentic, true, real, eternal peace that can come only, only in and through that someone. And we learn that that someone is the one found in the manger, lying in cloths, the one that the angel said named him Jesus, Yeshua. It's Jesus, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. You say, okay, Jonathan, but this happened thousands of years ago. 
So then why does it seem like we don't have this peace today? If the God of peace has declared his gospel to peace, that the Prince of Peace has arrived, has come, why does it seem like we're still missing this peace today? Why does it seem like it's not a reality in our lives? Why does it seem like we're just moving farther and farther away from peace? Well, for starters, it's a peace realized now, but not yet. It's one of those things. Like David, he had peace now, even as he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but he looked ahead to a realized peace to come. A couple of years ago, we were at my grandmother's house with my aunt and uncle and them. They live in New Mexico, and and around the block from their house is this tubing place. I think I've talked about it before. Um, Instead of sledding down the the mountain, it's tubing. You're on a tube, and you're, you're going down. And it's this little place that you pay to get in, and you, you pay to tube, and all that kind of stuff. Well, we got online before we arrived. We got online, and we purchased our tickets to this tubing place. So we had possession of the tickets. We had a right to the tubing place. And we arrived there, and we're pumped. We're excited. We have our tickets in hand. We're feeling pretty good. We see the mountain before us. We have a right to it. We have a right to the destination. Even though we possessed the tickets, though, we learned we still had to wait. We still had to wait in line. And we waited. Despite having bought the tickets online, we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And we hated it. We absolutely hated it. Because it's snowing, it's getting colder as the hours are going on or the minutes are going on. The kids were even younger than they already are now. And so they're constantly just asking, when is this going to be over? When will we actually get to go tubing? And we just kept telling them, as the scriptures tell us, soon. Soon. Yes, we have the tickets now, but not yet can we take full possession of the mountain. In Christ and through Christ, we have possession of this peace. We see this throughout the New Testament. But we're also waiting to take full possession of this experienced reality of that peace. In the same way David was still waiting. We're waiting for the appearing of our Lord. The second advent. When darkness, depravity, distress, and despair will dissolve like snow. Will slip away like the night at dawn. And the experience of that full possession will come soon. But in the meantime, I believe many in our culture especially lack the reality of peace in their lives today because in the waiting, so many of us are running with haste, not towards the manger, but away from it. We're told by the God of peace, This gospel of peace, that the prince of peace has arrived. And what do the shepherds do? They they ran with haste towards the manger. They ran with haste towards Jesus. But so many of us in our world are running away from the manger, away from Jesus. And as a result, so many of us, especially in our culture, are like those of old, those of Rome. Buying into the promise or the illusion Not of the Pax Romana, but of the Pax Americana. That humanity can have peace without the God of peace. That we can have peace without the gospel of peace. That we can have peace without the Prince of Peace. That ultimately, the Western world and the United States, what it has to offer is our 
peace. Let me explain. The Pax Americana literally means American peace. It's also called the long peace or the international peace led by America. It refers to the time after World War II to today in which the United States, along with the Western world, has become the world's dominant economic and military power. And it has seen relative peace, just like Rome during the Pax Pax Romana. After the end of World War II in 1948, the U.S. initiated the Marshall Plan, or the European Recovery Plan program. This plan provided foreign aid to Western Europe after the war. The United States transferred over $13 billion. That's equivalent to over $115 billion today. They transferred over $13 billion in economic recovery programs to Western European economies. The goals of the United States at the time were to rebuild West war-torn regions, remove trade barriers, modernize industry, improve European prosperity, and prevent the spread of communism. All good things. The Marshall Plan proposed the reduction of interstate barriers and the economic integration of the European continent while also encouraging an increase in productivity as well as the adoption of modern business procedures. You say, what's the point? Since then, the Western world, the U.S. as its leader, has seen an explosion of power, wealth, comfort, technology, and an advancement that the world has hardly ever seen. We could talk social issues, sure, but just look at travel, cars and boats, yes, but air travel, space travel, to other things like technological advancements like the computer, the internet, the smartphone, the smart everything. It's a modern Pax Romana. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. The problem is, is just like so many in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth, is so many have begun to believe the promise or the illusion of the Pax Americana. That the Pax Americana is everything. It's everything the world is supposed to need. The Western world, the United States as its lead, has accomplished and can offer to anyone so willing to come under our umbrella, we can offer them everlasting peace. A kind of peace that the world has never tasted before, experienced before, where you can be who you are and live as you are in peace. But yet, despite all the promises... Despite all the plans, just like in Rome, beneath the surface of the Pax Americana, there remains darkness, depravity, distress, despair. For example, we can look at the numbers of the the statistics on depression, anxiety, the addiction epidemic that is crippling. We can look at the mental brokenness. Brokenness. We could look at the mass confusion from identity to truth. In one collective loud voice, we're like Pilate declaring what is truth. We could look at drugs. We could look at human trafficking. We could look at injustices and abuse and neglect and sickness. The multitude, as Jesus said, who are still helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Despite the Max, Pax Americana, people are broken. They're wanting, they're searching dwelling in the land of darkness, 
walking and stumbling about to the valley of the shadow of death, still waiting for something they know they want, something they know they need, but something they just can't quite possess in and of the world. But we must know and believe, and we must tell people that it comes not from the Pax Americana, but it comes from the God of peace. And the God of peace has declared his gospel of peace. That the Prince of Peace has arrived. That he's among us. And that his peace is found in and only through Jesus. You cannot have peace without him. You can't have it without the God of peace, without the gospel of peace, without the Prince of Peace. No matter how hard you try, just as Dakota shared earlier in his testimony, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you tried, excluded from Jesus, you will have no peace. So let us not run away from Jesus, but hear the message like the shepherd boys did that night and go with haste to Jesus. And let us proclaim to the nations to do the same. A couple of years ago, I'll close with this. A couple of years ago, I was uh, at the house that we were living at previously, and it was a parsonage, so the church owned it. And it was right across the street from the church, kind of out in the country. And one night, I was, went out to take the trash out. I did this once a week for six years. And the trash can was so full that the two trash bags I had in my hand, I had to carry. And so I'm carrying them in my hand, and I, and I get the trash can, and I begin to pull it. And I had to, the way I dumped the trash at that time is I would pull it across the front yard cross the street, and then I'd walk down the road a little bit, and there would be a dumpster there that the church owned that we could dump our trash. And so this is, I, I would have this long journey of getting the trash can, walking across the yard, walking across the street, going up the street a little bit, and then dumping the trash into the dumpster. And so the trash can that night was so full that I'm having to hold two of the trash bags, and then I am just begin my journey, my trek. And as I'm walking, the, the front yard was just, you know, there's gophers and whatnot, so it's not even even at all. So it's just teetering, like wanting to fall, and it's a heavy load, and I'm just carrying it. And as I'm doing this, I'm just getting more and more distressed, more and more frustrated. It's dark out at this time, and I just can't even see the steps in front of me, but I just keep on marching along. I cross the street, I get up to the dumpster, and at this point, I'm distracted, I'm frustrated, I begin to think about other things going on in life as well, upcoming things, and so I'm full of just all of this stuff going on, all this noise in my mind, and I have this heavy load behind me as well. So when I arrive at the dumpster, I lift up the lid, and I dump the two trash bags into it, I shut the lid, I get the, the trash can, and I begin to walk back to the house. And I walk down the street, and I cross the street, and I cross the yard, and all the while, I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm frustrated. I'm distressed. I'm thinking about all these things. And I, it dawns on me, why is this load that I'm carrying so heavy? I'm, I'm literally approaching the house at this point. And I'm like, what is going on? And then it dawned on me, the error of my ways. I was still hauling around, unnecessarily, carrying this load that I didn't need to carry anymore. You could say, okay, I was struggling with darkness, depravity, distress, despair, if you will. 
because, even as we sang it earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus, because I refuse to unload the trash into the very thing given to collect the trash. The Prince of Peace is calling us to him. He was given to us that he might take away the sins of the world, that he might take away our trash, our burdens. But so many of us are running away from him. Unnecessarily still carrying a load. That he says, if you just come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, I would actually give you rest. I'd actually give you peace that this world can't offer you. That the Pax Americana will never satisfy. The Prince of Peace is calling us to come to the manger. To behold, to believe in the one in whom God has sent. The Savior. The one sent to take away the sins of the world. The one came to make peace through his blood shed on a cross. The one who brings true everlasting peace. The one who is the Prince of Peace. But it's also a reminder that for those in Christ, on those in whom his favor rests, the sheep of his pasture, that we are still waiting to take full possession of an experienced reality of this peace to come at his second advent. But in the meantime, let us do what the shepherds did and let us worship him and let us proclaim him to others. Because the God of peace has arrived and declared his gospel of peace, that the Prince of Peace is among us. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite Dakota and the team forward. And we're going to have a time of response. And for some of us, it's, it's been a stressful season, a dark season, a difficult season. And the Lord's just calling us to him to, to lay at his feet all those burdens. Just to come to him. Come to the manger, if you will. Come to Jesus. And for some of us in this room, we've been chasing everything this world has to offer. Still wanting, still searching. You will only find peace in and through Christ. Come to him. And for others of us, everything's going really well. It's a great season. But we're still waiting for the second advent. That day when, in which we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. But the call is to worship him. And to proclaim him. As peace is available to those on whom his favor rests. So in this time of invitation, whatever the Lord's leading you, to whatever decision, maybe it's of repentance, maybe it's baptism, maybe it's just church membership, maybe it's just to pray, maybe it's just to sit in the presence of the Lord. Whatever it is, be obedient to the Spirit's calling and prompting on your heart. Even as I pray, you be obedient to that. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your peace that comes in and through and only through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And we thank you, Lord, that we can experience that peace even now, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But we also thank you that we look forward 
to the arrival of Jesus, his second coming, the second advent. Until then, Lord, give us hearts and minds to worship you, to bow down and to praise you and to tell others about you. But Lord, I pray that we would just lay all of our burdens and everything at your feet, that we just come to you with haste, that you give us peace, especially in this season. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we sing, you guys stand, you come.